0: Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on, that regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular, or at least their sense of it. They can only enact legislation within a narrow set of policies, and this range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and the people changing what is politically possible. Police are generally popular, and because of this, the Overton window around policing issues has been pretty well locked into place, but that's begun to shift lately. Uh, This change is evident in New Mexico, which recently passed a law making government officials, including police officers, liable for civil civil, uh, lawsuits if they violate their citizens' constitutional rights. And with me to talk about how this law was passed is Jay Schweikert a policy analyst with Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, where he advocated for this law's passage. Jay, what is qualified immunity and why do you want it gone?
1: Uh, Thanks very much for having me. Um, So qualified immunity is in my view, the biggest stumbling block to accountability in the criminal justice system, especially as it pertains to law enforcement. Uh, This is a judicial doctrine invented by the Supreme Court Uh, which shields public officials, including police officers, from liability, uh, even when they have violated someone's rights. Um, According to the Supreme Court, uh, to bring a civil suit against a government agent, um, it's not enough to show that your rights were actually violated. It's also necessary, under the doctrine of qualified immunity, to show that those rights were, quote, clearly established, unquote, at the time of the violation. And that phrase clearly established is really the key to understanding how this works, because in practice, uh, to demonstrate that your rights were clearly established, you generally have to find a prior judicial decision in your jurisdiction where someone else's rights were violated in basically the same way as your own. In other words, it's quite common for courts to say, yes, your rights were violated. But we can't find a prior case with sufficiently similar facts as yours. Therefore, the defendants get qualified immunity, case dismissed.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, so what's a practical example of a right that would seem pretty obvious is a, is, is a problem but is protected uh, under this doctrine?
1: Yeah, I mean, we could do nothing but list examples of egregious <laughs> qualified immunity cases all day. Um, but I think one of the most illustrative examples is uh, a case called Jessup versus City of Fresno. Um, which was a recent case decided by the Ninth Circuit, where police officers were alleged to have stolen over $200,000 in cash and rare coins uh, from a suspect uh, while executing a search warrant. In other words, this person alleged that these police officers, through the guise of investigating me, actually just abused their authority to steal money from me for their own personal enrichment.
0: And not a little bit either.
1: And not a small amount, no. Now, obviously, if those facts were true... No one would think that those officers were acting in good faith or trying their best to carry out their duties. Obviously, anyone would know that was unlawful. But the Ninth Circuit granted qualified immunity to those officers, not because it decided they were acting in good faith, but simply because the court had never addressed that exact scenario before, where officers stole money while executing a search warrant. Um, So this doctrine ends up having the effect of excusing often the most egregious misconduct— precisely because that sort of egregious misconduct is less likely to have come up in prior cases.
0: Mm, Interesting. Um, Presumably, this is an issue you've cared about for a long time. Uh, What has happened to make this reform politically feasible now?
1: Uh, Sure. So, yeah, I've been very focused on this issue in particular really since I've been at Cato, but especially in the last...
0: Uh, How long have you been at Cato? Uh,
1: I joined Cato in 2017. Uh, and we launched our official campaign to eliminate the doctrine of qualified immunity on March 1st of 2018. Uh, and that's really been my primary project uh, uh, since then. Um, originally, we were a bit more focused on the Supreme Court because this doctrine, in addition to being you know, illogical and unjust, is also f- flatly unlawful. It is a blatant rewriting of our primary federal civil rights statute, section 1983, and it's, very, it's completely inconsistent with both the text and the history of that statute. Uh, and so we were trying to help convince the Supreme Court to take up a case uh, reconsidering the doctrine of qualified immunity entirely. Uh, unfortunately, um, in uh, June of 2020, the court denied cert, in other words, declined to hear mm-hmm. uh, a, a number of major cases that were raising this question. Um, however, uh, around that same time, as you know no one needs reminding, um, shortly following the death of uh, George Floyd, our nation was plunged into turmoil, I would say, and really is is still experiencing a crisis of confidence in our nation's law enforcement officers. Uh, I think it's interesting that you noted uh, at the very beginning that you know, police are very popular, which has shaped sort of the Overton window on policing reform. Um, and historically, I think that has been true. but, uh, Gallup polling just in the last year shows that for the first time ever in the history of it conducting this poll um, a majority of Americans do not have faith in law enforcement and um, and that lack of faith is driven in large part by the public's accurate perception that police are rarely held accountable even when they commit serious misconduct and the biggest reason for that is the doctrine of qualified immunity. Um, so So.
0: So what you're saying is that you've got a plan to make them more politically popular.
1: Exactly. Uh, I mean, I I think that anyone who is. Feels sort of protective about law enforcement officers, who is concerned about the fact that people don't have sufficient respect for law enforcement officers who think that police are being unfairly stereotyped based on a few high profile examples of police misconduct. If that is sort of your view, you should be more supportive of qualified immunity reform than anyone. Because it is professional police officers who suffer when un- their unprofessional colleagues, the small when the small minority of officers who commit the most serious misconduct, are not held accountable. Uh, so this doctrine, far from protecting the police, is actually doing them a tremendous disservice.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's dig in on uh, the kind of changes to police popularity. Uh, Black Lives Matter has been obviously very important to uh, uh, to a lot of people, and, but especially those on the left, whereas the right has been a lot more skeptical about uh, some of the things that they're t- uh, talking about. Why do you think more people on the right should care about this issue?
1: Well, I think they should they should care about it, um, you know, kind of for the reasons I was just saying that, that if that it's actually hurting uh police officers as much as it is hurting the victims of police misconduct. Um, policing is a dangerous and difficult job. And it is made far more difficult when police do not have the trust or cooperation of the communities they police. Um, you know, Investigation is very difficult if citizens aren't willing to talk to you. Uh, when the populace at large is skeptical or even hostile to police officers, that increases the risk of escalation and violence, even in mundane encounters. So uh you know no one benefits from that lack of confidence and so anything that can help ensure that police officers are held in higher esteem um is something that is going to benefit the law enforcement profession uh and qualified immunity is a big part of why uh that esteem is plummeting right now
0: so a bunch of states are uh, interested in this now uh, how did you get involved in that
1: Yeah so you know, after it sort of became clear to us that um, the Supreme Court was unlikely to reconsider this doctrine, we really shifted our priority to the legislature, both uh, in Congress and at, at the state level. Um, obviously, we would prefer, uh, you know, we, would, we think that Congress can and should uh, you know, amend Section 1983, basically to clarify that it means what it says, that <laughs> a public official who violates someone's rights shall be liable to the party injured, and that qualified immunity shouldn't apply. Um, and, and, you know, this really is an issue that I think needs um, a national solution so that everyone's constitutional rights are protected. Uh, in the meantime, however, states can play a, you know, a huge leadership role here. Um, because while states, of course, cannot change federal law, what states can do is pass state-level civil rights laws. Uh, that create a sort of similar state law cause of action against officials who commit constitutional violations and then clarify that qualified immunity will not apply to those state laws. Uh, And and that's what we're starting to see happen. Um, Colorado was the first state to do this um, last June uh, when they passed policing reform that included a civil rights action against police officers uh, and and clarifying that qualified immunity wouldn't apply. Um, And then just this past week, um, New Mexico uh, passed uh, a similar law, but that applies even more broadly to all public officials in the state, not just police officers.
0: Let's talk about New Mexico a little bit. Um, how'd you get involved there?
1: Um, so we you know are constantly in the process of reaching out to and working with state legislators that are interested in addressing the policy issues uh, that we're focused on. And so um, you know we we've been involved in that process for a long time now, and we've you know had, Developed some good contacts with a few of the key uh, New Mexico legislators, uh, especially um, uh, Antonio Mestas and Georgine Lewis, who have been integral to this particular effort. Um, we we never you know support or oppose any particular piece of legislation, uh, but we are you know of course trying to educate. Oh, why is that? Um, because Cato is a five hundred one c three and doesn't lobby, um, and just we, you know our our role is to be policy hmm. experts. And Mm -hmm. to provide policy support to legislators of any party uh, who are interested in addressing, you know, the issues that we think are priorities. Um, So obviously, you know, uh, we, you know, we work with them. We work with legislators who are working on particular bills like this one. But our uh, input is not explicit endorsement of any particular bill, but rather Mm -hmm. uh, large education about the larger policy issue.
0: To that point, what is uh, the role of a policy researcher in these kind of legislative battles?
1: Well, a lot of my role uh, is simply clearing up misunderstandings. Um, I mean, I'm sure that everyone, you know, feels like their particular issue is not fully, completely understood. But mm-hmm. it is remarkable how many blatant falsehoods are propagated about qualified immunity, in particular. Um, unfortunately, by uh, you know, talk largely about by what, some by, of them. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, some of them are pretty blatant and embarrassing for instance uh in the federal debate um you know some of the major law enforcement organizations in official testimony concerning the george floyd justice and policing act kept criticizing that bill for eliminating qualified immunity on the grounds that it would lead police officers uh to be criminally prosecuted and go to jail but qualified immunity is not a criminal doctrine at all Mm. it's a civil doctrine only so i mean that's a you know one of the most blatant mistakes
0: uh, an extreme claim that helps their cause and it sounds plausible enough
1: I suppose so i mean it's honestly more, it's honestly it's unclear to me whether that is the product of genuine and astounding ignorance or a a willingness to deceive on such an obviously falsifiable issue so even that even that kind of surprised me but i think probably more more commonly what what you hear quite frequently is this assertion that Qualified immunity is somehow necessary to protect the discretion of police officers to make difficult decisions in, you know, split-second, dangerous circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that if you got rid of this doctrine, that would somehow mean that police would be, you know, deterred from doing their jobs at all, and maybe people would stop being police officers.
0: Too afraid to perform the function.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that that concern is reasonable, but it simply has nothing to do with qualified immunity, because um, it, you know, it's important to keep in mind that qualified immunity only matters when an officer has, in fact, violated someone's constitutional rights. Right? The doctrine makes a difference in that space, space between, yes, your rights were violated, but those rights were not clearly established according to a court. So if an officer hasn't violated anyone's rights in the first place, by definition, they don't need qualified immunity to protect them because they're just not liable at all. And, the four, and it's, in that respect, it's important to understand that uh, the Fourth Amendment, our substantive constitutional law, already incorporates tremendous deference to reasonable on-the-spot police decision-making. The Supreme Court has made very clear uh, that the mere fact that an officer makes you know, the wrong call in the sense of arresting someone who turns out to be innocent or using force that turns out to have been unnecessary, that's not illegal. That doesn't violate anyone's constitutional rights in the first place because the court recognizes that police officers do need uh, discretion to make those difficult calls. Rather, a police officer only violates the Fourth Amendment when they act objectively unreasonably, which means that 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 deference that I think reasonable people think police officers should have to make good faith calls is already accounted for by our constitutional law. It's not something you need qualified immunity to protect. Uh, But that point is is so consistently misrepresented that uh, I am constantly having to work to explain to legislatures and their staff why eliminating qualified immunity doesn't mean officers are going to be afraid to do their jobs. It simply means that officers who act objectively, unreasonably can be held accountable.
0: All right. So for this most recent um, battle in New Mexico, how many lawmakers did you have to explain that to?
1: Uh, Well, Pretty much. I mean, all of them in the sense that I I, I testified before, um, you know, a, a committee hearings related to, uh, you know, an earlier version of this bill and certainly got a lot of questions along those lines from uh, many members of the committee. Uh, and then I also, you know, held a uh, basically like a policy briefing for the entire legislature. Um, I don't know that every single member attended, mm-hmm. but there you know, dozens of members were in attendance and their staff was in attendance. And again, this was a point that.
0: Um, Can we go back on this one for just the mechanics of this one? Uh, the legislature is like, hey, we're going to be talking about this issue. We want to bring in some people to talk to you about what we're going to be voting on. Or what is that?
1: Yeah, basically, it, my understanding is that some of the you know legislators that we were working sort of closely with who were kind of driving this issue, uh, mm-hmm. you know, wanted to host a um Basic, I mean, an informal uh, briefing for any for all interested legislators and their staffs to discuss the issue of qualified immunity, since that was obviously a focal point of this particular bill. Um, and so, you know, we had they held a virtual briefing, you know, where, um, you know, at least dozens of uh, legislators and their staff were in attendance where, you know, this was an issue that we discussed. And, you know, there are questions about it in a number of different forms. Um, and, you know, hopefully I was able to provide some clarification uh, to the members to understand, you know exactly what was actually at stake with this proposal.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, who are your allies on the issue?
1: So, one of the things that's interesting about this issue in particular is that there is there is broader cross ideological support for qualified immunity than literally any other public policy issue I have ever observed. <laughs> um, when we were working on this uh, from the litigation perspective, one of the key things that Cato did was organize this vast coalition. Of public policy groups from across the ideological spectrum and brought them all together on one brief. And this included groups more traditionally, you know, left leaning groups like the ACLU and the NAACP, but also very conservative groups like the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which is a conservative religious liberties group, the Second Amendment Foundation, um, Americans for Prosperity, um, as well as, of course, libertarian groups like Cato and, you know, uh, the Reason Foundation. and even a law enforcement group, the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, um, and uh, uh, who are they? Uh, they are a, a uh, you know re- a reform-minded law enforcement group that um, uh, in, in this particular issue has been very you know supportive of qualified immunity reform, uh, both at the national level and also on a state by state level. Precisely because they recognize how this doctrine is actually making their jobs more difficult and not protecting hmm. uh, you know responsible police officers. Um, and so, you know, and, you know, I, I I feel confident saying that the brief that we filed on behalf of all those groups is the most ideologically diverse amicus brief ever filed in the Supreme Court. And mm. I think the reason is, is that, you know, all of those groups care about protecting constitutional rights. Maybe we, you know, disagree on the scope of certain rights or we prioritize different rights in our work. But we all agree with the underlying premise that constitutional rights Have to be protected that if they're violated there has to be a remedy for that violation. Otherwise, you know, they're not actually doing the work that you want them to Um, and in that respect, we all agree that qualified immunity uh, is, you know, both an unlawful and unjust doctrine that is standing in the way of accountability for all public officials.
0: Who are your opponents on the issue.
1: So I think, unfortunately, a lot of the opposition really is driven by misunderstanding. Um, there, you know, and and predominantly this comes from, you know, what I consider to be like the law enforcement lobby, um, police unions and, uh, FOP sort of style law enforcement. Oh,
0: that's the fraternal order of police. right? Yeah, that's right.
1: Um, and again, I don't mean to sort of paint with a broad brush. There are plenty of law enforcement groups that do not support qualified immunity. Um, LEAP, like I mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as the, uh, as, as well as Noble, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives, so this is not monolithic by any means, but you know there are a lot of law enforcement groups that, whether out of a you know sort of knee-jerk defensiveness toward the profession or genuine misunderstanding about the issue, uh, you know, are urging legislators not to pass qualified immunity reform for some of the misguided reasons I discussed earlier. Um, you know, so th- again, that kind of comes back to you know we're trying to equip policymakers with the information they need. To identify and push back on those misunderstandings Um, you know like I can't tell you how many debates I've had where you know there was a member of law enforcement you know who's brought in to be like the defender of qualified immunity and by the end of the the debate they're basically saying okay well sure if an officer is acting objectively unreasonably they shouldn't be immune I'm just saying you know you shouldn't be able to sue them for good faith mistakes and it's like great we completely agree (laughs) And you're not talking about qualified immunity um, so you know so again it is mostly unfortunately you know law enforcement organizations that are pushing back on this um, but I think over time you know we're gonna start as we can you know keep working on clearing up those misunderstandings um, you know I hope that even that opposition will fade and I think it you know it's noteworthy in in Colorado in particular um, the you know police unions there didn't oppose that bill um, they weren't Enthusiastically supportive of it, but they were mm-hmm. neutral on it, um, and I think that's you know in part because there was a a you know serious conversation among stakeholders about what actually would be the effects of that proposal.
0: And you're not aware of any non-police organization that supports qualified immunity, or.
1: Is- um- I mean, I wouldn't go that broadly. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think I believe there are, uh, you know, a few other, you know, perhaps more conservative leaning organizations that have, uh, you know, for instance, I I believe that the Manhattan Institute, I've seen some of their authors um, criticize qualified immunity reform. I'm not sure whether the institution has a has a position on it, the issue more generally, you know, so um you know, I don't want to say that there's no one else out there who opposes qualified immunity reform, mm-hmm. but in the public policy space, there is more consensus on this issue than anything else I've seen.
0: Yeah. Well, I meant specifically in these legislative debates where, like, there are official coalitions for it and against it. You're taking testimony. You're trying to pull lawmakers in one way or another. Yeah.
1: Actually, I, I suppose what I would add is, aside from law enforcement organizations, especially when it comes to um, state legislation, mm-hmm. there have been... Uh, You know, like organizations of municipalities Sort of associations of like cities and towns and states That have opposed qualified immunity reform Basically Mm -hmm. from a financial perspective Mm -hmm. Claiming that it would, um, you know, simply cost too much um, To, uh, you know, fund judgments against government agents Who violate people's rights And and what I find sort of very (laughs) Telling or even perverse about that opposition Is that it's basically saying the state cannot afford to protect the constitutional rights of its citizens, <laughs> and I don't think that's true. But if it were true, that would be even even extraordinarily more serious problem. Because if there, you know, I'm not I'm not going to say that there won't be any financial impact from these proposals. In some sense, I would expect there to be at least some financial impact. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, maybe they're not having the effect we think they should. But You know it's important to keep in mind that if this to the to whatever extent this is a serious financial uh you know burden on municipalities what that necessarily means is that there are currently major constitutional violations going unaddressed so you know these the civil rights laws are supposed to have both remedial and deterrent effects so to a certain extent the financial impact is a feature not a bug because that's what gives Both municipal municipal organizations, as well as individual defendants, the right financial incentives to make sure that they conform to constitutional limitations. Um, So, you know, I think that 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 opposition is very misguided, but that is sort of the other sort of primary institutional opposition to qualified immunity reform that I've seen, you know, like municipalities and the various organizations that represent them.
0: Mm-hmm. so in this particular battle in uh, New Mexico you've got the legislative champions, they're very interested in getting this one, they've worked to get their uh, get enough votes to get this passed and you're in here to try and help make sure, keep everyone on, on board, respond to objections from both supporters and opposition uh, or supporters and opponents um, uh, how important is that role? I
1: um. I mean, I I hope I think it's important. I, I mean, I think that we're making making an impact here. I mean, I, I think one of the advantages of coming at this from uh, from Cato and from a libertarian perspective is that uh, I think we have some credibility to, in, in the sense of credibility as nonpartisan policy experts, right? I, I think that mm-hmm. there are you know plenty of issues. You know, I don't I don't think anyone's under the illusion that, you know, the Cato Institute and, you know, libertarians who work there are, you know, generally in agreement with either Republicans or Democrats, you know, across the board. Um, but we're willing to work with anyone who is interested in, in our policy priorities and qualified immunity as a top one. So I think that that gives us some um, credibility to, you know, speak across the aisle to explain, you know, perhaps to more conservative leaning legislators why this isn't a... Super lefty defund the police kind of proposal. This is something that actually stands to benefit law enforcement as much as anyone else. Um, You know, I I mean, in Colorado, um, you know that the the proposal there passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. I believe the final vote in the Colorado Senate was um, 32 to one. It was a little bit more um, partisan in New Mexico, unfortunately, because I don't think this is or should be a partisan issue. Um, You know, but nevertheless, you know, I think that's part of the reason why we don't approach this from a lobbying perspective and why we're not ever Mm. supporting any particular, you know, politician or any particular bill, but rather uh, stepping back and from a nonpartisan perspective, explaining why, uh, you know, everyone should care about the issues at stake here. So, you know, I mean, obviously, there are lots of people who have been working on this. Um, It's not just us. But I think that that. Sort of nonpartisan expertise has played an important role um, in in helping policymakers recognize why this is something they should be on board with.
0: Yeah, I know from my work, I find that uh, the, as a policy researcher, uh, it's really tough to convince a lawmaker about how to vote on this issue. Like they've made up their mind, they've sensed uh, you know uh, uh, how popular it is, whether their district will support it. But where you really uh, where you do have an impact is that. If you don't have answers to tough questions, they lose confidence in 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 their positions. If you do have good answers, they gain confidence. So it's it's just a, a necessary um, uh, role in these legislative debates.
1: Yeah, and and overall, I've been very encouraged by you know the conversations that I've had uh, both at the state and the federal level. I mean, I think that. Um, You know, obviously there are selection effects there because the people who are interested in digging into the details here are the ones that agree to talk to us in the first place. Um, But I think, uh, you know, I've I've been very encouraged, Um, you know, far be it for me to ever be optimistic about politics. But um, (laughs) I you know, I've been encouraged by by uh, people who are really willing to reconsider their, you know, the views that they came in thinking they were holding, you know, willing to acknowledge that they might misunderstand certain aspects of an issue. Uh, and I think you know that's been necessary to see real progress uh,
0: on qualified immunity reform What needs to happen to make this issue more bipartisan?
1: um I think an increasing again you know increasing recognition about the ways in which this is hurting police officers um, you know i i i i find it I find it funny i'm always i've kind of been tempted to write a somewhat sarcastic Criticism of like the F.O.P. opposing qualified immunity reform, because what they're what they effectively must be saying is our officers are so unprofessional that the only way, you know, and and not just so unprofessional, but so, um, you know, callous that the only way they'll even consider doing their job of protecting people is if you ensure they won't be held liable, even when they break the law. Right. They're such miscreants that that's what they need to do their job. And that, to me, if I were a police officer, I would find that incredibly insulting. (laughs) And yet that somehow is, you know, the pro-law enforcement position, Mm -hmm. or at least they think it is, which in my view is not just wrong, but entirely backwards. Um, So I think that, you know, the more that, you know, policy leaders in this area, um, and, you know, I think even especially, maybe even especially, you know, um, Democrats you know who, who maybe can have some credibility in exp- explaining why this is not you know some knee-jerk hostility toward police officers this is recognizing a problem that plagues citizens and the police alike um, you know so I, I always you know encourage policymakers to make that point very clear because um, I think that's really key to getting you know bipartisan cross ideological uh, consensus on this issue which again I think there is in the public policy space but You know, it's somewhat harder to translate that into um, political outcomes, but you know, I think we're making progress.
0: Yeah, what you're saying makes me a lot more optimistic about this issue because it sounds like it's largely a trust problem. Um, People who are engaged in this one that have this uh, protection don't trust uh, changes to it, and it'll just take some time and some experiments like we're engaging in now and. in Colorado, New Mexico, in New York to show that the fears are, are may are, are unlikely to be justified.
1: Yeah. And I think also, you know, we're going to you know, there are a lot of apocalyptic um, predictions made about, oh, if you got rid of qualified immunity, say goodbye to the police force. No one's going to want to be an officer. And it's like, well, you know what? As far as I'm aware, there are still police officers in Colorado, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, you know, New York is is posed to uh, the New York City Council has passed Um, City level qualified immunity Reform which we expect to be signed into law Quite soon um, I don't think The NYPD is going to disappear Um, And so you know I think the more That's why I think you know states and localities can play A a leadership role because The more you know Areas address local qualified Immunity reform the more knockdown evidence there is that this is not going To somehow destroy the police Force Um, But I do think it you know You know we are likely to see it having a salutary effect on the uh, the way that individual officers and police departments, you know, structure their policies and behavior to conform to constitutional limitations, because that's the goal.
0: Where can people learn more about your work?
1: Uh, so people can go to uh, Cato's website specifically focused on qualified immunity, which is unlawfulshield.com. dot com. Uh, we have a, you know, we have uh, frequently asked questions and a blog and a lot of background resources on the issue. So that, uh, you know, will give you the, all the info
0: you need uh, about qualified immunity. Jay, thank you for sharing your story about how you're shifting the Overton window. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast by the Mackinac Center for Public Policy. Learn more about the Overton Window at www.theovertonwindow.com.